1995, when he was only 43 years old, Jean-Dominique Bobby. Jean-Dominique Bobby is a famous journalist in Ellie, a French fashion magazine. Suffered a massive stroke. These were the days before systemic thrombolysis or thrombectomy. If you had a stroke then, you were given aspirin and you were watched for improvement. 28 days later, Bobby regained consciousness, finding himself unable to move or to speak. He woke up to find himself paralyzed completely, speechless. In fact, the only thing he could do was blink his left eye. The only way he could communicate was by blinking his left eye. The emotional toll is something that few have ever had to endure. We're lucky that he left us with a memoir from his final days, written entirely in the form of eye blinks. I think it's a story that makes people want to be in the present, uh, become conscious of what consciousness is. One day, Bobby writes, I can find it amusing, in my 45th year, to be cleaned up and turned over, to have my bottom wiped and swaddled like a newborn's. I even derive a guilty pleasure from this total lapse into infancy. But the next day, the same procedure seems to me unbearably sad, and a tear rolls down through the lather a nurse's aid spreads over my cheeks. The title of his memoir, for those who haven't read it yet, is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which perfectly encapsulates how Bubby felt about his condition. The stroke left him locked in. It was probably this early exposure to the locked-in syndrome and my own personal beliefs which shaped my understanding of what it's like to be locked in, this tragic, helpless state of immobility. I remember growing up, a friend of mine's mother fell off her horse one day, fractured her cervical spine, paralyzed below the neck. When I called my friend on the phone one day, I remember she had to break away for a second because her mother needed her nose scratched. It almost brought me to tears. There's nothing pretty about it. But maybe you'd be surprised to learn that patients in the locked-in state, especially those who choose to live their life in that condition, generally they're pretty happy about things. The person on the ventilator is generally not unhappy. They don't regret the decision to survive in a state of total dependency. The alternative is also not acceptable. They don't wish that they could end their lives any sooner. They will continue to live with the disease, and the disease will therefore continue to progress. So today on Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine, and all the fascinating science and history that come with it, the locked-in state. How patients feel. How providers and caregivers feel. I have a lot of both sympathy and empathy for them. And a critical appraisal of the published literature on each of their perspectives. How confident are we when it comes to understanding the patient's quality of life? I'm Jim Sigler. Stay with us. This week on the podcast, I spoke with Dr. Lauren Elman, who joined me via Zoom. How are things? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. You might remember Dr. Elman from her prior episode on the ALS Multidisciplinary Clinic. I'm an associate professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center. I am a neuromuscular neurologist. I spend about half my time taking care of patients with ALS and the other half taking care of adults with inherited disorders of muscle and nerve. Before we even get into the meat of our program, how patients feel when they are locked in, what caregivers think, and so on and so forth, it's important for us to define the locked-in state. It was originally a term that was described by Plum and Poser in 1966, in which a patient could be so weak and so unable to speak 
but otherwise was cognitively intact. The patient would be unable to articulate speech due to facial and oropharyngeal weakness, but they could either move their eyes or blink as a means of communicating. The locked-in patient otherwise has intact sensory function. They can feel their arm itches, but they can't scratch it. They can hear sounds. They can comprehend speech. They can read words. They can appreciate music. They can see and they can smell. But it is a monumental challenge for them to communicate their thoughts, their interests, their concerns, and their frustrations. Communication can be limited to the use of eye blinks or eye tracking technologies, which follow eye movements and detect which letter or word the patient's looking at on a screen. As you can imagine, even a single sentence in the 21st century can take a considerable amount of time to generate, and many conditions can cause this locked-in syndrome. Multiple sclerosis. Brainstem tumors, trauma. ALS. Metabolic disorders like pontine myelinolysis, demyelinating disease. Stroke. Brainstem infections, abscesses. Those are probably the most common. The locked-in state is pretty rare, even for patients who have ALS and other progressive neuromuscular disorders. Dr. Elman, can you give us a sense as to how many people we're talking about? So in the United States, most people with ALS do not progress to the locked-in state because most people will actually choose to, at the end of life, have hospice care and let the disease take its course and uh, die of respiratory failure. That would be the most common way of dying of ALS. But there are some people who do elect for tracheostomy and permanent uh, ventilatory care and have a feeding tube as well. To give you a sense, fewer than one in eight patients with ALS will undergo tracheostomy and gastrostomy tube placement in the United States. In our clinic at the University of Pennsylvania, five to seven percent of people choose to have permanent invasive ventilation. And for a disease with an average survival of only three to five years after symptom onset, ALS patients can get an extra two years with these devices. So they will continue to live with the disease, and the disease will therefore continue to progress. And by that I mean that not only will they continue to have progressive weakness in arms and legs and progressive respiratory failure so that they're completely reliant on a ventilator, but even other muscles that we don't commonly think of as affected by ALS will progress. And so their very last means of communication will be by communicating with their eyes. And when they progress to this point, it's considered the locked-in state. We do have technology that allows people to communicate using eye gaze systems. And this does allow people to communicate for a certain amount of time, although it is the case that eventually even these muscles will fail and people will lose the ability to communicate with their eyes. But I think right now we're focused on people who can still communicate using their eyes. Eventually, when eye muscles also break down, and this is really only specific to ALS and other neurodegenerative conditions, not all patients with the locked-in syndrome, when these eye muscles break down, that's when all form of communication with the patient has been lost. So it's imperative for providers like Dr. Elman to have a detailed understanding of what the patient's next wishes would be and what to do in the absence of two-way communication. When we have this conversation with our patients, we usually try to set stopping rules, which means that if there should come a time when it is agreed upon by physician and caregiver that all methods of reasonable communication have been lost, then 
aggressive care will be stopped. And that means withdrawal of ventilatory care under heavy doses of medication, and then death will ensue. It's so hard to even imagine the state of mind that a person must be in when they reach that state. And, you know, you and I have both seen this, but when you have that conversation with patients and their caregivers, how do you kind of drive the conversation? Are you, do you drive it like we have this opportunity to help support you through this or we have this opportunity to help you pass more comfortably? So this conversation occurs the first time when we talk about end-of-life care. So it turns out that, you know, caring for people with ALS requires a conversation about end-of-life care. And that conversation is really most often about whether an individual wants a permanent ventilator. And if an individual chooses to have a permanent ventilator versus hospice care, then the talk turns naturally to communication because that is the thing that is most important about being an individual and really being human. And it is the hardest thing. It is the hardest hurdle to overcome. With ALS and other related conditions, you can imagine and you can even plan for a stepwise loss of communication. As breathing becomes more challenging, non-invasive ventilation is necessary to support the patient. Dr. Elman and I discussed this back on episode 34 on the ALS Multidisciplinary Clinic. The patient becomes dysphonic or anarthric and may only communicate their wishes by mouthing. And this may grow challenging as the facial weakness sets in. So alternative means of communication must be found. And this can become really um, the primary goal of care at this point. So for this, and for many other reasons, it's critical to understand a patient's wishes regarding the quality of life, quantity of life, plans of care, and also ways that these plans and these wishes can be modified as the patient experiences this entirely new way of living. These are very difficult conversations. Maybe what was once a crystal clear plan of I want to live as long as possible and spend time with family, will transition to, I cannot burden my family with this any longer. Everyone just has to make the decisions that they're most comfortable with. Or maybe the original plan to prioritize comfort and avoid tracheostomy and gastrostomy tube placement takes a 180, and the patient now wants to be there for when their daughter gets married, or when they have a grandkid. They can't wait to see their grandchildren. Or maybe the patient simply does not want to die. And nobody knows the right answer. As the locked-in patient loses the ability to verbally communicate or to communicate with mouthing or gestures, they must learn to communicate by other means. This is referred to as Augmentative and Alternative Communication, or AAC. And you can divide AAC methods into two camps, aided and unaided modes of communication. With unaided modes, the patient can communicate independently using gestures, facial expressions. This is nearly impossible for the locked-in patient with ALS, but maybe it could be useful for patients who have cerebral palsy, for example. Aided modes of AAC, on the other hand, rely on external support. A communication board and eye gaze tracking systems are those that are most frequently used, although brain-computer interfaces using EEG or advanced neuroimaging are being explored in clinical research. Actually, you'd be surprised. Um, People can become incredibly facile with their communication devices. Eye gaze systems are 
very advanced and uh, sometimes in advance of an appointment, uh, an individual will type out on their eye gaze system a whole litany of questions that they have or things that they want to discuss. Um, so I but even after you've taught the patient how to use the gaze tracking AEC device and they learn to generate phrases and sentences. Hello, how are you? Fine. Thanks for asking. Most of what we say to each other can't be reduced to the words that come out of our mouths. My back hurts. You shouldn't have repositioned me is not the same as you shouldn't have repositioned me. You shouldn't have repositioned me. Despite these limitations, Dr. Elman and other medical providers and caregivers, they're still able to glean a lot from their patients about their interests and their wishes. We can have very meaningful conversations. The concern really is about when an individual starts to lose the ability to use their eye gaze systems. And then you really aren't necessarily sure if you're communicating with the individual. Sometimes what happens in those circumstances is that a family member who's, you know, only um, has the best intentions and only has love in their heart thinks and truly believes that they're communicating with the individual, but it can be hard from the doctor's standpoint to determine if meaningful communication is actually occurring. And that can be a real conflict between the physician and the caregiver to, to really know if uh, meaningful communication is happening. So, for example, how do you know if a person is in pain if you're not really sure if you can communicate with them? There are examples out there of um, individuals who've had broken limbs because they may have um, accidentally fallen out of their wheelchair um, and because of the lack of ability to communicate uh, pain, no one knew there was a broken limb until someone uncovered a very swollen and bruised knee, sent them for an x-ray and found out their leg was broken. And in fact, there had been no ability to communicate that problem. So there are stories out there like that. And it, it really does beg the question of how do you know when you've truly lost the ability to use their eye gaze systems. To you or to me, as I believe many of the Brainwaves listeners are medical providers, when we see patients in this state of living, we have a tendency to see only the suffering that these patients may be experiencing. Being unable to communicate their wishes effectively, especially later in the course of their illness, or perhaps not fully grasping what's happening, for some ALS patients who have the frontotemporal dementia overlap, we assume that this is not a desirable quality of life. But that's not exactly the case. In your formal interviews with these patients, you know, and in the literature, we've learned that throughout the entire process of becoming locked in, patients are actually a lot less depressed than we think they are. Yeah, it's, it's very, very true. So when I talk to patients about whether or not they want to have a, a permanent ventilator, it is always something that I mention to them because one can't imagine a lifestyle until they've lived it. So, you know, the data shows that patients who are on ventilators judge their own quality of life as higher then their caregivers would judge that individual's quality of life. And I quote that. There was a recent paper that was published in the Green Journal from 2019, which actually prompted this whole show. It kind of shook my world, it changed my perspective on how ALS patients who are locked in do not regret their decision to proceed with trach and peg. You can find the reference to that paper in our show notes. And it's not the first of its kind. Other studies have reported similar experiences of locked in patients who communicate with their eyes. What the investigators in this Green Journal paper reported, though, in 19 Polish patients who had ALS in the locked-in state and 19 caregivers of those patients, is if the patient had to choose again, 
most patients would still want the trach. I'll accept one. And I'll accept one would still want the peg. And only two patients expressed wishes for a hastened death. And this continues to surprise providers and caregivers, who, according to the study, significantly overestimated depressive symptoms of these patients. So it turns out that the quality of life projected upon a patient by both a physician and a caregiver is lower than that which is experienced by the individual themselves who is on a ventilator. And that is universally true. The person on the ventilator is generally not unhappy. And that's something that we often need to remind ourselves. And I have checked myself over and over and over again because I ask my patients after they've made these big decisions, how do you feel about the decision you made? I ask patients after they've gotten a feeding tube, how do you feel about having gotten a feeding tube? Do you think it was the right decision? And I'm never surprised when they tell me yes, that it was the right decision because it seems like an improvement in the quality of their lives. They don't have to work so hard to eat. They don't have to choke and sputter on their food. They're getting adequate nutrition. They don't have to stress about it. So it seems natural to me that they're happy about that decision. I ask the same question to my smaller number of patients who choose to have a ventilator. And uniformly, the answer I get is yes, I'm glad I made this decision. And I'm often a little bit surprised, but of course the alternative is they wouldn't be here. So maybe that's what we have to consider. So even though we project that this is not a good enough quality of life, the alternative is also not acceptable. And it's not just us as providers or healthcare authorities or the people that see them in clinic every couple of weeks or months, but it's also the patients next of kin and their caregivers who overestimate the degree of depression that these patients experience when they're locked in. Are they seeing something at home, you think, that we're not seeing in the clinic or Do you think it's their own stress or it's their grief that they're transferring to the patient? I think it's just very hard to imagine oneself in in that predicament. I mean, it doesn't look pretty. There's nothing pretty about it. I think really, once you find yourself in those circumstances, you have to find um, joy and pleasure in other things. So being around family members, interacting with people, reading those things are still possible, enjoying television. So you just have to take pleasure in what you can. And I don't really know what it is. I've given this a lot of thought. I think there may be cognitive dissonance involved um, that makes people accept the decision they've made. Now, I will say that at a certain point, you know, people sometimes do hit a wall and say, I've had enough. So we have certainly had the circumstance of people requesting withdrawal of care, you know, what we call a terminal wean. So under those At this point, the patient can still communicate using AAC devices, as we've discussed, and they've shown capacity to continue to make medical decisions for themselves, and they're requesting for life-sustaining measures to be discontinued, turning off the vent. In a controlled environment, typically they're in the patient's home, but sometimes they're in a hospital, and the hospice or the nursing staff make every effort to put the patient at ease, giving them high doses of morphine, sometimes giving them an anxiolytic, and once the patient's put to sleep very comfortably. And then withdrawing the ventilator. I feel like there's a lot of bias that exists in the literature that that kind of pretty definitively shows that patients are very content with their quality of life in the locked-in state, while caregivers and providers 
uh, will constantly and frequently overestimate the degree of their depression. Uh, is there any concern that you have regarding this data or, or do you find it pretty credible? I don't think there's any reason to doubt the data. I really don't. Um, I think it's been shown in, in multiple disease states. So it's not just in ALS, but in other disease states as well. Um, generally speaking, my population of patients with ALS does suffer from depression and I do treat them for depression, but I don't think that the rate of depression is any different in those who are ventilated versus those who are not ventilated. So I don't think there's any... It's truly insightful to hear this from Dr. Elman's perspective because I simply don't see these patients often enough. As an outsider to this psychological and social dynamic between patients in the locked-in state and their caregivers and their providers, I only know what I've seen in the literature. The Polish study that I referenced earlier, the one with 19 patients and their caregivers, it's really compelling data. But if you look at it more critically, and if you look at related studies, you might find a few holes. For instance, in the Polish paper, there were actually 103 patients and their caregivers who were contacted to participate in this survey. Only 25 responded, and 19 were ultimately interviewed. 82% of the original population either could not be reached or they deliberately chose not to participate. Makes me wonder, did those people decline to participate in a study about quality of life because they were depressed? They were apathetic? They had regretted their decision to prolong life? Or maybe they were conflicted. Maybe they were changing their minds and electing to pursue comfort measures and a terminal wean. We can't know. In addition, we don't have a control group. We can't. There's no way to know how satisfied patients were who chose not to progress to a locked-in state, i.e. those patients who sought comfort measures. Would the patients who chose a terminal wean choose it again if they were given a chance? Then there's also the potential for ulterior motives. I hate to say it, and this was brought up by Andreas Herman and Eliza Aust, two German neurologists, but there may also be a secondary morbid gain, as they phrased it. Undisclosed financial benefits because of the patient's disability, for example. The Polish study also represented only a single point in time. Two patients out of the original 19 had expressed interest in a hasten death, and we know from other studies that a patient's perspective of the locked-in state can change over time, so I wouldn't necessarily assume that most ALS patients who are locked in prefer to be alive and locked in for the rest of their lives. We must continuously engage with these patients in order to make sure we're delivering the care that the patients desire, knowing that their desires may change. Do, do you yeah. see that patients regret the decision or that they have a second thought after the fact? So most of the time, patients do not initially regret their decision to be ventilated. Uh, I think that as the disease continues to progress, though, and they lose basically all function and start to feel the ability to communicate fading away, that's when a significant portion of, of the ALS population in this country will request a terminal wean probably half of the folks we see. Part of the problem is that once the patients get on a ventilator, quite often they stop coming to clinic and we lose touch with them. And that's a real problem because then it's not clear to me who's assessing their ability to communicate. Because if it's only loved ones, then it's really hard to tell if they're making an accurate assessment of what communication really is. 
But for those who continue to come see us in clinic, we're very aggressive about assessing this ability to communicate and discussing that with patients. There's a lot that I took away from this talk, and there's a lot of complexity to figuring out how best to honor the wishes of your patient who's locked in. Definitely not an easy circumstance. But you have to remember not to project your own feelings into the situation. Your feeling of despair and depression is not necessarily what the patient's feeling. The person on the ventilator is generally not unhappy. Hello, how are you? Fine. Thanks for asking. The episode today may not have been the typical kind of program you're used to on brainwaves, No detailed discussion of the neuroimaging or clinical trial results. No deep dive into pharmacology. But it is one aspect of medicine that's just as important for us to know about. It's very hard to project another person's quality of life. It's no less important than knowing how to work up a patient who has lower extremity weakness or when to prescribe a migraine prophylactic. And that's something that we often need to remind ourselves. And that's it for our program on brainwaves. As always, this is a program intended for medical education and should not be used for routine clinical decision making. Thanks again for Dr. Lauren Elman of the University of Pennsylvania for joining me on the show. For healthcare providers in the audience, I would strongly encourage you to read the references in the show notes, which are always posted along with the Brainwaves podcast episodes. This week's episode of Brainwaves was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, with the assistance of Lauren Elman. Our show is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with music this week courtesy of Julie Maxwell, Kai Ingle, Steve Combs, and Purple Planet Music. Additional music by Shane Ivers, which can be found at silvermansound.com. Our theme song was composed by Timothy Dalton. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information about what was discussed on the show, as always, please review the show notes for the references again. And follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon.